Good morning, uh, Redeemer. Good morning, especially if uh, this is your first time with us, you're visiting. It's wonderful to be together, to hear from God's Word. Uh, today also is a special day. Yesterday, or this weekend, marks 12 years since Redeemer's first service here in Dubai. Uh, that, that's great news, isn't it? We can celebrate uh, our God's faithfulness. But for 12 years, He has been bringing, working through His people, uh, working through His servants, bringing people together that they might know hope in Jesus. Uh, we can give thanks for our God's faithfulness, for providing for us that we can meet openly and freely in this country. Uh, we can praise our God for the work in people's lives, as people have found hope in Jesus, if people have taken that hope from here, from this church, uh, to uh, surrounding nations and around the world. Uh, it's, it's such a joy to, to think of how God has worked by His Word. Uh, so we're going to pray now that God would work uh, in us uh, as we hear God's Word. So please join me. Father, thank You uh, that You are at work. Thank You for 12 years of Redeemer. Uh, thank You that You have been building Your church, working through Your servants Lord, we thank You so much for the power of Your Word as we've seen it, we've seen it these 12 years. Father, continue to work in us even today. Show us wonderful things in Your Word as You've told us. Work uh, through, even this passage today, uh, that we might see You clearly and then in Jesus we might have hope. It's in His good and great name that we pray. Amen. Well, you may or may not know the name Hiru Onoda. Hiru Onoda was an officer in the Japanese army during the Second World War. Uh, he was deployed to the Philippines, uh, to Lubang Island, I think that's how I say it, um, in 1944, uh, during the Second World War, where he began to, to fight in the war. Uh, so he was there for about a year before, on se September 2nd, 1945, before the war came to an end. The war was won. Uh, his army kind of surrendered uh, and peace was declared. Except it took a while for the message to get to Hiru and Oda, and even when it did, he would not believe it. Though the war was over, though there was peace, Hiro Inoda continued to fight. He was, had a couple of others with him for a time, but eventually they kind of gave up or, or were killed. But for years, Hiro Inoda lived there in the jungle, occasionally stealing a, a goat or, or a cow to, to eat. Sadly, occasionally getting into fights with and killing local farmers. He kept fighting the war for 29 years. Uh, after peace had been declared, until in 1974, uh, something different had happened. The Philippine army had come to try to draw him out, but that hadn't worked. The Americans had dropped leaflets uh, there in his language, explaining what had happened, that the war was over. But it was in 1974, 29 years later, that his, his old commanding officer from the Japanese army, who was now selling books in Tokyo, he, he came, and he came in person into the jungle, told him to stand down, and he did. It's a tragedy, isn't it? When you don't realise that the victory has been won, when you keep fighting. 
uh, when the war is over. As Christians, I think we can feel, uh, we realise often that we are in a battle. We look around the world and see countries at war, we see battles looming. We look around the world and see different ideologies that seem to be shaping our world, different forces. Uh, we, We can feel like God's cause, God's church is under attack. We can look around the world and see seeming enemies, those who would be against Christ and His cause, those who would be against the church. We see enemies of of freedom or or truth. For many of us, we'll be aware of the battle against sin. We'll know the Christian life is a battle. Uh, We know our battle against sin. We, We know how the devil is at work, tempting, trying to draw away. The Christian life is aware of many battles. And as we come to today's passage, we'll see that we have a God who fights for His people, a God who is with His people and fights for them. Yet the amazing thing we'll see in today's passage is that if we know Jesus, if you know Jesus, the greatest battle has already been fought. The greatest victory has already been won. Uh, we'll see it throughout Zechariah 9, uh, sorry, 12 and 13 uh, as God fights for His people. Several times we'll hear in this passage of a battle that is coming. He says many times, on that day, on that day, on that day. He's speaking 500 years before Jesus, about 500 BC, uh, telling them of a battle that is coming. And the first thing he says is that God will protect His people. While the nations come against Jerusalem in a great battle, the nations themselves will be injured and God's people will be saved. Join me from chapter 12, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. God declared that He is the Creator, He is the God of all creation. Yet this God who is Creator is also Judge. God is the God who will make all wrongs right, who will judge and bring justice against all injustice, against all sin, against all evil. And throughout the Old Testament, the image is that God will pour out a cup, His cup of wrath, His judgment against evil and sin. And where in the past God had spoken to His own people and said, because of your wickedness, because you've abandoned me, you're going to experience my cup of wrath, you're going to experience my judgment, now someone else is drinking this cup. He says, verse 12, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. This time it's not His people who are drinking the cup, someone else, the surrounding peoples, will experience God's wrath. He continues, the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. This is a picture of a battle, the nations coming against His people. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. As someone who's experienced kind of back issues in the past, I laugh at this. It's a picture of someone coming, trying to move a rock and then hurting hurting themselves. 
I think more, more specifically, this language seems to be they try to lift the rock and, and gash their hand. But it's saying the nations are going to try to attack, try to move God's people, yet it's the nations themselves who will be injured. We're told all the nations of the earth will gather against it, against Jerusalem. On that day, declares the Lord, I'll strike every horse with panic, its rider with madness. But for that sake of the house of Judah, I'll keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. That sounds like the victory Gideon won uh, years beforehand, that they smashed the clay pots and revealed the torches. Um, we, we hear, um, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, that sounds like the victory Samson won years ago against the Philistines, setting their, their fields on fire. And they shall devour to the right and the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place, in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Everyone's going to be saved. On the day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest of them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I'll seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. The picture God gives His people is a coming battle. The nations will come against His people, but it's the nations themselves who will be injured. God will protect His people. He will save the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He will save all the people of Judah. Yet we will hear of one person who didn't survive the battle. And instead of rejoicing at the victory and salvation of God, uh, we'll hear of mourning and repentance. That the king was pierced by his people. In verse 10, where we might expect celebration, God has delivered His people, we instead get grief, mourning and repentance. Verse 10, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And it's understandable that they might cry out to God. Often when things are going well, when life is easy, it's possible to rely on ourselves and not rely on God. And when things get hard, when we feel like enemies really are against us, that's when we cry out independence. So that would probably happen, but there seems to be a deeper reason here for the repentance, a deeper reason that they're calling for mercy. We're told it's so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The nation had been saved, the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem were saved, yet someone didn't survive the battle. Someone has been pierced fatally. Who is this one who was pierced fatally? Uh, well, again, it, it could be that he was, he was pierced sort of unintentionally, maybe it was um, friendly fire, these people kind of fighting against the enemies accidentally pierced pierced him. 
Yet there's something actually deliberate about it. They're looking on him whom they have pierced. We get some clues on who this one who was pierced is. As God says, they'll look on me, on him, me. So it sounds like this is God himself who has been pierced. Yet God also speaks of someone else. He says, they'll look on me, on him whom they've pierced. They'll look on him. And it sounds like it's probably God's king. Uh, In verse 11, we're told on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning on the plain of Megiddo. And that probably means nothing to us. But as Christians, if we hear something like the hill of Calvary, we know we're talking about Jesus' death. Where for God's people, the Jews in those days, they would have known when they hear the plain of Megiddo, that's when one of the last great and good kings was killed, King Josiah, years beforehand. If the morning is like on the plain of Megiddo, that's like when one of the last great and good kings was killed. Again, as we hear of the morning, the morning starts in the house of David. The one who was pierced, well, it seems God himself, yet also it seems to speak of God's king. He has been pierced, <clears throat> but then who pierced him? There was a battle, the nations came against, but we're told at the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look, look on him, they have pierced. And that could be friendly fire, an accident. But more likely, it seems that they're taking responsibility for his death. It could be because this was related to judgment. We heard of the language of God's cup of wrath. Maybe they realized that this battle was because of their own sin. And this language of being pierced had been used by another prophet years before, as Isaiah said, a servant was coming who would be pierced for our transgressions who would be crushed for our iniquities. The people have been saved, yet their king, even their God, has been pierced and they realise this is our fault. Even because of our iniquities, uh, because of our sin. And we hear of the whole land then mourning, grieving family by family as he's poured out on his people, uh, a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy and repentance. And as God's people call out for mercy, as God's people call out, cry out to him in repentance, we see God do something amazing. We actually see that the battle isn't just about the surrounding nations. This battle wasn't a battle that was to be fought with swords. We see that through this victory, through this piercing, God is going to defeat a greater enemy. God is going to win a bigger battle. And that's the battle against sin. Defeating the enemy, the greatest enemy. That's not just another army, but sin that we can do nothing about. We hear that sin will be cleansed. In chapter 13, in in three ways. Firstly, in, chap- in verse 1, we hear of the forgiveness that God brings. 
because this one has been pierced. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We might be able to fight, fight and maybe defeat a, a foreign force, a foreign army. We can do nothing about our own sin, our sin before a holy God. God says, because this one was pierced, a fountain will be opened, a fountain which offers cleansing, that we can be forgiven of our sin, cleansed from sin and uncleanness. And as He brings forgiveness, He then says, actually, this will work itself out two ways in the people's lives. And verse 2, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so they shall be remembered no more. The people will be forgiven and this will be shown in their actions that they stop worshipping idols, in, in their actions that they stop living for other gods and live for the true God. And we see it, it, it impacts their actions but it also impacts their thinking. As God says, in that day there will be no more false prophecy. Verse, verse 2, I will also rem, remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. For years, God's people had been, in their actions, worshipping other gods, yet also in their mind, they'd been longing for other truths, for falsehoods. They were finding prophets who would tell them what they wanted to hear rather than the truth from God. Uh, yet God says on that day, I'll forgive sin, I'm going to cha change my people's lives, but I'm even going to change their thinking, that they'll no longer crave false worship, false truth, false prophecy. In verse 3, he says, again, in that day, false prophets will be dealt with severely, as they were told to in, in, in Deuteronomy, in verse 3. In verse 4, we just get a picture of prophets who don't have a job because there's no need. They won't put on the hairy cloak like Elijah did uh, to, to deceive. Um, well, Elijah didn't deceive, but again, there's just no need. Uh, they said they'll go back to their day jobs, um, this is a picture that God is going to cleanse the land completely. He'll forgive their sin, He'll change their actions, He will change their thinking. God is going to deliver His people, God is going to save His people. He's going to bring a victory and a salvation, not just from a foreign army, but from sin itself. And He'll do this finally as the shepherd will be struck to bring salvation. Verse 7, God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. So it felt at first like the nations were the enemies, the nations were coming to attack. And then we hear it was actually God's people who pierced this one. But now we're told that God Himself is taking up the sword. God Himself is taking up the sword of judgment. Because God is the good judge who brings justice to injustice, who judges evil and wickedness. Like he'd said that he was going to pour out his wrath because he is the holy God, the holy judge of all the earth. God himself says, I'm going to take up my sword. But this sword isn't against the other nations. This sword is against my shepherd against the man who stands next to me. God is going to pour out His wrath on sin, yet 
not on those far away, not even on the sinful nation, but on his shepherd. And this shepherd is likely God's king, descended from the shepherd king David, as God had been promising that he would have a shepherd, a king. As he says, the man who stands against me, this sounds like Psalm 110, where God said that he was going to have a king descended from David at his right hand. A king who also would be called Lord. God is going to bring his judgment, his sword, his cup of wrath, yet against his shepherd. We get another picture of a battle. Yet through this battle, God will bring salvation for his people. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, we're told in verse 7. I'll turn my hands against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. God says, victory is coming, yet it's coming through a great battle. Peace will come, yet it will come as the sword is lifted. The drawing in of God's people will come through a scattering. God is bringing salvation through judgment. God will fight for His people. And as God spoke all of these words, these chapters to His people, around 500 BC, I think they would have looked forward and said, well, yes, a battle is coming. Yes, one day God will come and judge sin. On the last day, the day of judgment, one day in the future when God comes to judge the living and the dead. And we get a hint of that, Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. We're told, behold, He, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of Him. There is a day coming, a day when God will judge sin. There is a day coming. Yet the amazing truth we discover 500 years later is that that day has already come. That day is coming, yet it has already come. That battle, why it may have been coming, for those who know Jesus, that battle has already been fought. That battle has already been won. Because Jesus, who is both God and King, defeated sin as He was pierced. Friends, if you trust Jesus, then your greatest battle has already been fought. Your greatest victory has already been won. Your greatest enemy is not out there. Your greatest enemy, your sin, has already been defeated. Because when Jesus came, Jesus was the one who was both God and man. He was both God and God's King. He was both God and His good shepherd. He's the shepherd who doesn't just stand next to God, but the shepherd who is himself God. That this king came, we know that he was rejected. He came to his own, yet his own did not recognize him. And the night he was betrayed, as we've heard, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered in Zechariah 13, Jesus told his disciples 
Mark 14, 27, you will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus told his disciples, now is the time that this battle is coming. The battle promised in Zechariah, it is now. Yet this battle is going to bring salvation. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This will be the means by which God draws in his people so that he can be their God and they will be his people. He tells them a battle is coming, yet it's not a battle of this world. In John 18, Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus said, this battle is here, yet it's not going to be fought with a sword. Put your sword away, Peter. This battle is coming and it's going to involve Jesus drinking the cup that his Father has given him. Now, in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew that it was not his people who would drink the cup of God's wrath, not even the nations, firstly, but instead of his people, he would drink the cup of God's wrath. And this is what we saw again in Zechariah 13, as God himself said, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. In Jesus, we find the loving shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The sword of God's judgment will fall, not on we sinners who deserve it, but the sword of judgment falls on his son. And Jesus tells us, as he is the good shepherd, that he willingly lays it down. He says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down, I pick it up. Jesus, our good shepherd, willingly lays down his life for the sheep. He drinks the cup of God's wrath, he bears the sword of God's judgment as he fights our great battle for us. Zechariah 12, 3 and 9, we were told that the nations would gather together against Jerusalem. Yet in Jesus, we see that as he gathered to get, they gathered together against God's people, yet not a city. They gathered together against God's person. In Acts 4, God's people who are being persecuted, they pray. In Acts 4, uh, chapter Chapter 4, verse 24, they pray, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That sounds like the first verse of, of Zechariah 12. Who through the mouth of our da father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together, same phrase as Zechariah, against not Jerusalem, but against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. We see there God's people declaring that that battle has come, yet the nations didn't come against a city, 
a city of rubble. The, the nations came together against God Himself. The nations came together against His servant, Jesus. This was the great battle where God fought for His people. Where the nations gathered against the Lord and against His anointed, the Holy Servant, Jesus. Yet even in this prayer, we see that it wasn't just the nations who were there against Jesus. Uh, it's said that they gathered together into the Holy Servant Jesus, Acts 4.27, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. God said here, it wasn't just the nations attacking Jesus, this was even His own people. All of them together coming against Jesus, the Son, Jesus, the Shepherd. And that makes sense because who was it that pierced Jesus? It was the very ones being saved. Zechariah 12.10, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. John 19, we hear of Jesus on the cross. John 19.32, the soldiers came and broke his legs of the, the, broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it's born witness, his testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. God brings His salvation through a defeat. God brings His victory. He fights for His people as He Himself is God and King, as He is pierced, uh, pierced by His own. There's a right response to this. As Zechariah had told, He will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, a spirit of repentance. That's what He does with His people when they realize that Jesus died for them. Peter declares in Acts 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, not all of them had held a nail, not all of them had hit a hammer, hit with a hammer. But Jesus is saying to them, this is Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, pierced, if you will, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness or cleansing of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. You see, God did begin to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication on His people so that they would realize that when Jesus died, when Jesus, the God-man, was pierced, it was for them. And when God brings that conviction, when God shows you that He was pierced for your transgressions, He was crushed for your iniquities, well, that brings about a repentance. 
And God shows himself faithful to forgive sins and draw us in to be his people. They may not not have held the nails. We may not have held the nails. Yet as we look to Jesus, who's God and man, we can say, it was we who pierced him. It was for our sin. And as we realise that, it's right that we be pierced, cut to the heart, call to God for mercy. And he is faithful. He says, on that day, a fountain is open for the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. He forgives our sin. He takes it away. God says, you don't need to battle against your sin in your own power, hoping you can be good enough. You don't need to battle against your sin, hoping that one day you, by your own strength, might overcome. He says, the war's already been won. Jesus said, it is finished. The sword of God's judgment has already fallen. And if you know Jesus, it will never fall on you again. The cup of wrath has already been drunk. And if you trust in Jesus, it will never be drunk again. Because it fell on Jesus. He was pierced for us. Sin still remains in our lives. There's still battles, yet because Jesus was pierced, uh, we continue to look to him. Well, he will begin to uproot the idols in our lives. He will begin to change our actions and our thinking. We would no longer believe lies but truth. Our God has fought for his people. Our great victory has been won. So what is your greatest victory? What is your greatest enemy? What is your greatest battle? You may look around the world concerned at things going on whether it's nations or armies or ideologies or ideas. And it's right that we take that to the Lord, that He is word work. You may look inward and just see that the battle you have against sin feels like it's never-ending, hoping you will get through. Yet this passage tells us that our greatest enemy is our own sin. Our greatest battle is the battle against sin, when God's wrath will be poured out on sin. And we see that that battle has already been fought, that victory has already been won through the death of God's Son for all who would trust in Him. We do still battle against the flesh, we do still battle against the devil, the devil's still at work, prowling around, we need to fight him. Yet we do that in confidence that the victory has been won. He will return and complete it. Secondly, do you realize that, again, it was you who pierced him? It was your sin, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Through this passage, we saw the whole land grieving, tribe by tribe, house by house, realizing that, well, some of us have done great evil, Others have trusted in our own goodness, yet all of us need salvation from sin. That line, that line between good and evil, that we like to put the bad people over there and the good people here, that line cut through every human heart. So do you realise that it was your sin? You pierced him. 
It's when you do, when you trust Him, when you come to Him for salvation, you'll find Him faithful to forgive and to cleanse and even to change you now. That You will be His people and He will be your God. And finally, friends, do you see here the wisdom of God's plan? Do you see here His strange wisdom where He's going to bring victory through defeat? Must have been so strange, so hard to believe. And there were ways today where God's, God's ways can seem slow or weak. We're doing things God's way feels like, hey, we're, we're losing. It could be ways where God's, God's ways seem like foolishness to the world. Yet we should look to this, God's plan, which seems utterly foolish and see in it His wisdom, His goodness, His love and His victory. In Luke 24, we hear of after Jesus' resurrection, He was walking along the Emmaus Road with some disciples. And they were confused, like how could Jesus, God's King, die? And in Luke 24, verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a sermon to have been at. Would love to be there. Yet you wonder where where was God taking them? There's lots of there's lots of promises throughout the Old Testament that God will send a great king. There's hints that he's also sending a servant who might suffer. But I wonder if God if Jesus took them here to Zechariah 12, 13, say they weren't two people. Already here, God was saying, my king, my shepherd, I myself are going to be pierced for my people's transgressions, crushed for their iniquities. This is God's wisdom. So when we're struggling to trust Him because His ways seem weak or slow or foolish, let's look to Him in awe, let's look to Him in praise, let's look to Him in trust. For our God has worked, He has fought for us. If you know Jesus, your greatest battle has been fought and won. Your greatest enemy has been defeated because Jesus, the God King, defeated your sin as He was pierced. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You that You've not left us alone, You've not left us to fight that great battle against sin by ourselves, but You Yourself came in. That the cup of wrath, that the sword of judgment would fall not on us, uh, but on our Saviour, Jesus. Help us to trust Him. Help us to trust your ways. Lord, help us to stand in awe of your love, your goodness, your victory, what you did, that we might be your people and you might be our God. It's in Jesus' good and great name that we pray. Amen.